You're listening to a podcast by BI Norwegian Business School. The global financial crisis erupting in the US in 2007 and spreading to large parts of the globe in the following year was the largest financial crisis since the Great Depression of the late 1920s and early 1930s. A great number of financial institutions collapsed or had to be saved through government intervention. And for a period, the global flow of credit came to an almost complete standstill. The effects on the real economy and on the lives of ordinary people were massive. The crisis led to deep economic recessions in many countries. Unemployment levels skyrocketed. Retirement accounts and life savings were swept away. In the aftermath of the crisis, hundreds of books and articles were written with the purpose of explaining the causes of the crisis. In the US, a separate Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission was established, publishing a report spanning more than 600 pages. In the years preceding the crisis, a dominant view had developed among both economists and many politicians that the financial system had found ways of stabilizing itself, and that financial crises were a thing of the past. Indeed, the financial system had become very large. A vast number of new products had developed, and the financial system had become occupied by a large number of new entities, often re referred to as shadow banks, performing a larger and larger proportion of the creation and intermediation of credit that had traditionally been performed by regular banks. Securitization of loans and the growth of an unregulated over-the-counter derivatives industry had increased the size and complexity of the system even further. The overall view was that this increasing size and complexity functioned as a hedge against crisis. The idea that the entire system, with all its different parts, could collapse at the same time was not seriously considered by many. But this was exactly what happened. While big and complex, the system was also interconnected. And the sheer complexity of the system created a situation where fear spread easily. Nobody knew which entities were financially sound and which were financially frail. In effect, the system was brought down by a classic panic-driven bank run on the shadow banking system. The size and complexity of the financial system as described above is probably also a major reason why so many books and articles seeking to describe and explain the crisis have been published in its aftermath. The pure size and complexity of the financial system simply makes it very difficult to explain the crisis or to know at which institutions or which agents we should put the blame. This becomes particularly true if the ambition is to find a simple parsimonious explanation, supported by a specific theory. In such cases, we are most likely doomed to leave out important factors in order to fit the realities to your the theory. An alternative approach would be to develop a broader and less parsimonious historical explanation. Here, you will have to sacrifice the appeal of theoretical stringency, but the reward might be an explanation that fits better with the realities of the crisis. Both of these alternative approaches can be found in the existing literature. What then have been the core findings in these writings? How well have different theories fared in explaining the 2007 and 8 crisis? How can the crisis be explained more historically? My name is Espen Ekberg. I'm a professor of economic history at BI Norwegian Business School 
and I'm hosting this podcast on financial bubbles, crashes and crises. Today our theme is the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8 and how this crisis can be explained. As already indicated, we will approach the theme from two angles. First, we will discuss how well suited various existing theories of financial crisis are in explaining the crisis. And secondly, we will try and explore the crisis from a more historical viewpoint. And as always, to help me out with solving the task, I invited a guest. Hello. How are you? Uh, good, good. Good okay. to be here. Yeah, good to have you back. And uh, Benjamin, Benjamin is here uh, because, of course, he has been for, um, I think, all the years that I've been teaching this class, he has been my guest lecturer on the, on the course um, when we talk about the 2008 financial crisis. And he knows a lot about this crisis. And um, uh, so that's why I... I invited him back uh, after having talked about theories earlier on. And uh, Benjamin, just to know, perhaps people didn't hear about you in the former show, so maybe you can just briefly present your background. Right. I studied uh, economic sociology and economics. Uh, then I did my PhD in uh, economic theory, mostly economics and innovation in particular. And uh, now currently I'm a researcher at the Christiania University College. Okay, good. I think we just start because this is a big crisis. We can it go is. on forever talking about this crisis and we don't have that much time. The producer says 45 minutes maximum, so we have to be quick. Right. So, But just the 2008, well, it has many names. Mm -hmm. 2008 crisis, the Great Recession, the subprime crisis. What do you prefer to call it? Well, 2008 is just boring. <laughs> and the subprime crisis uh, is a bit misleading, as we're going to say. So my money is uh, on uh, the Great Recession, which is uh, fancy, and it connects uh, with the Great Depression, and it's a good connection to make. Okay, so then let's stick with the Great Recession. So tell us, what was the Great Recession? What mm. happened? Uh, I would say it was a systemic crisis in which uh, the dollar-based funding system on which our entire globalized economy works uh, collapsed for a time. And then it was uh, fixed in a relatively short time, but the damage was immense. Okay, so I have this question, how big was Is it possible to compare the bigness of this crisis with other crises? Or? Yeah. yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, researchers like to play that game. Mm. And uh, the Great Recession is put uh, into that kind of uh, category, in which you have only uh, the Great Depression and uh, the long depression or long recession, which is a crisis that happened in the 19th century. Uh, systemic crisis that affected uh, uh, the entire, the globalized capital economy. Okay, so when we talked earlier about the Great Depression, so uh, people should be well aware about the, the um, comparison here. And uh, uh, I have another question, because when we talk about the Great Recession, uh, um, it, it is often talked about as an American crisis, but you're talking about it as a global crisis. So, um, and you did not like the expression the subprime crisis. So, so uh, it was not only a U.S. crisis, according to you, at least. And tell us why. Uh, it was a U.S. crisis only in the sense that since uh, the U.S. dollar is at the top of our monetary and financial system for a number of reasons. Uh, and since this was a systemic crisis, uh, uh, the part of the crisis that affected the US was particularly important. But uh, since the US dollar is the international currency that is used for most of the financial and the commercial exchanges, it is a very much a global crisis. Also, uh, it was not only US uh, actors that were involved here, the Europeans had a very a large role in creating this crisis. 
Yeah, and we will come back to that uh, later on. Um, okay, so this is, uh, you know, uh, a crisis of historic dimensions. Not many other crises are as big as this one. We, we, um, we landed there. And, um, and in an earlier podcast you were here, you talked about theories of financial crisis. And I thought we should do this, um, this uh, small game. So we should try and test if any of these theories that we talked about, about back then uh, can work as an explanation for this crisis. And so um, one of the theories we talked about was uh, the behavioral theory of financial crisis. And uh, where we pointed our fingers to the, bar, to the market players in explaining the crisis. And does this fit well with this uh, Great Recession? Well, um, there, there has been lots of attempts to fit this explanation to the Great Recession, and usually pointing out to the fact that the Great Recession arrived at the end of a period in which there was a significant belief in the ability of free markets uh, to bring wealth and prosperity. Uh, and the Great Recession sort of marked the end of that period that started with the collapse of the Soviet Union in, and uh, also uh, in, from a historical perspective probably marked the end of the Washington Consensus. So uh, some of authors have pointed out that uh, there is a strong belief in uh, the ability of markets to deliver and the ability of markets to be efficient when unregulated uh, led to a number of poor choices on part of both investors and regulators that combined explain the crash. Um, I think uh, there is a lot to be said there, uh, but uh, I think it's also a somewhat limited explanation of the crisis, at least for my money. Mm -hmm. uh, another theory we talked about, and we agreed that this was not really a theory of financial crisis, it was a theory of how financial markets work, the efficient market theory. Uh, what have these uh, guys talked, um, you know, what, how have they explained this crisis? I guess. It's tough because the, this one uh, was uh, more than anyone else uh, a financial crisis, right? And so there's relatively little to be said, although there's been some research that tried to explain it as a productivity shock and a, especially a, a shock to preferences. So, for example, there is a rather significant paper that uh, explained this as a sudden change in the preferences of American workers, which American workers uh, really wanted to become bankers. And uh, that created a financial glut of sort because uh, uh, too many people wanted to enter finance uh, and, uh, fi and the financial sector became too large and so on. And this eventually precipitated a crisis. But let's say that uh, um, most explanations uh, uh, acknowledge uh, the limitations and the faults in uh, uh, the financial structure that existed at that time. Yeah, because we can just remind uh, the listeners when we talked about these theories, um, um, a few weeks ago that um, when uh, when the efficient market theory, for example, would typically blame uh, a financial crisis on things that happen outside of the financial system. Right. And, um, and for behavioral theory, for example, would look inside the financial right. system. Um, and to give you an example, the financial um, the efficient market theory is not very good for the 2008, right? But what we are experiencing now with Corona fits much better. Mm -hmm. We have a big explosion of shocks and the markets are not collapsing. Of course, they are not collapsing because there is a lot of central banking intervention going on at the same time, but at least it fits a bit better than 2008. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we also talked about a different theory, the theory of market failures. So... Is it possible to, you know, 
point to some specific market failures? It is, cause? and uh, I think uh, the theories of market failure make a pretty good job of uh, giving uh, a good theory, uh, theory-founded uh, description of the actual phases of the crisis itself. So what happened in the, between 2006 and 2009, pretty much. So you can, uh, the authors that uh, come from that perspective have done a good job of uh, describing it quite well, showing how essentially there were some issues, especially in our repo markets and in uh, the securitization process. And there were some failures there, failures of regulation, but failures of information and so on. And you could use uh, these uh, very specific aspects to explain the dynamic of that period. Uh, it's not so good to explain uh, how we reached that situation, how that situation was created. But if you're only interested into the nitty-gritty details uh, of what happened there, then uh, the, the, these theories work pretty well, I think. And yeah, and then we have uh, not the theory, and you were not allowed to talk about that theory in, uh, because we had a separate show on that. It was very interesting uh, uh, talking about uh, Austrian theory and monetarism. Um, uh, is it possible to, you know, link these kinds of theories? To it this is. Um, of course, Austrian uh, uh, theorists have provided their own explanations and uh, they have pointed out to the uh, immense uh, amount of uh, money that was uh, created before and in the period uh, coming up to the crisis, right? And uh, uh, they point out that uh, these, together with very uh, easy uh, interest uh, rates, being uh, this policy being pursued by the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, uh, together created the conditions for the crisis because this led to significant misinvestments and so on, following Austrian theory, essentially. Um, there are there could be some issues with that because of the fact that um, the let's say the central actors uh, of what happened in the Great Recessions were private actors, and as we know, Austrian theory is very keen on blaming governmental uh, intervention or lack of intervention for uh, creating crisis. So there can be some challenges there, but I'm I'm sure that uh, the experts on that theory can try to solve it. And they also blamed uh, the uh, authorities for how they reacted to it acknowledging that they managed to, uh, let's say, in the short term, solve fixing the issue, but creating problems uh, for the long term, problems that uh, we are living through today. And uh, if I say monetarism and monetarist theory, any differences? Or well, it would still be predicated on the idea that uh, uh, the um, money creation and destruction process is essentially controlled or at least strongly influenced by the state or the public sector in general if we, introduce, if we include the central banks within it. And uh, this is a proposition that I do not happen to share. But if you start from that assumption, then you could make uh, uh, a similar description as uh, the Austrian theory. So the problem was the... Um Lack of control of money creation. Lack of control of the monetary supply, mm -hmm. essentially, uh, which uh, I would agree that the phenomenon was there. Uh, the fact that it was the central bank doing it is what I disagree with, but, you know, opinions may differ. Yeah. Okay, and the final theory we talked about was this business cycle theory. Uh, we put it, we mentioned Kindleberger. Um, uh, can we see this, his five or six or whatever phases of a financial crisis in... Uh... <laughs> well, um, you can because they are very generous in the sense that uh, they can be squeezed quite a lot. So we know that uh, there was a period of uh, 
uh, decent growth, especially in uh, the United States, but also in the rest of the world, uh, that created uh, the conditions for bubbles to generate. We know that uh, if we take into account a longer perspective, so since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we know that we entered this uh, latest uh, globalization round, which was uh, rather good for growth from a global perspective. And then this created bubbles, as we know, because, uh, for example, there was uh, the 2000. Uh, financial bubble in uh, um, related to technology and the IT sector in particular in the US, right? But that did not stop this process. And you could say that uh, there was a bubble uh, in the housing market in the US and this bubble uh, eventually created euphoria and it created uh, more and more risky uh, behavior on parts of uh, both homeowners and lenders. So borrowers and lenders both became, uh, let's say, addicted to risk. And then this eventually collapsed. Now, uh, is it uh, a good explanation? It is a good explanation, uh, but it doesn't tell you anything more than uh, the general Kinderberger story, which works well for Kinderberger because one of his big points is that crises uh, are quite similar to each other. So if you fit the events to his model, you get uh, a story that, is, uh, uh, that works quite well. It, it, it seems to me that his, his model is, is quite descriptive, you know. It's, uh, there's not many explanatory uh, points here. So why does this happen? You know, you have this, uh, this uh, irrationality in there, of course, that can explain some things. But, but uh, um, we talked a lot about uh, uh, Kindleberger focusing on this external events, the, yep. the, pla- the displacement that starts off the boom. So the displacement in this case would be probably uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the integration of the uh, second world within the first and the globalization round. Mm-hmm. What about because uh, we can read about what about innovation in the financial sector or deregulation? If or? you take a shorter term uh, view and then you only consider uh, the housing bubble, uh, then of course uh, the rise of securitization and the legal acceptance of uh, securitization instruments from uh, in the private sector was uh, definitely a, a big factor there. Okay, thanks. So, so if uh, I was to ask you, so we have these different theories. Um, um, is there, do you have a favorite <laughs> or do you think they are uh, um, uh, any of these theories that we can you know, really explain the crisis or do you need other types of explanations? To I understand? don't think any theory can explain the crisis. I think uh, uh, all of these theories can be applied to the crisis. Uh, I think the value of this exercise differ depending on uh, the theory. So some theories are more useful than others to explain this crisis. And I think uh, something uh, of that opinion come out in my description. Uh, but I, as I said uh, in uh, the other podcast uh, mm-hmm. I was on, uh, what you really need is a, a historical uh, description of the crisis. And uh, none of these theories taken in isolation provides you with that. Okay, so then let, just let me challenge you then. So what would be your historical explanation of this crisis right. is it possible to do it in one podcast or yeah. it is difficult but we can certainly try yeah yeah, yeah. go on okay so um it would start uh, a long time ago mm-hmm. uh, it would start essentially from uh, the end of the second world war and uh, it would start with the horses for courses uh, model of banking this was a uh, minsky's expression where we had what is now called traditional banking 
um, which means that we had a very safe bank, uh, banking industry, very heavily regulated, uh, in which it was mostly based on uh, deposits on one side, so banks uh, taking deposits on one side, and then uh, making uh, lending on uh, activities on uh, the other side. So as, as assets, they would have loans, and as liabilities, they would have deposits. And they would expand uh, the lending activities and expand the deposits at the same time, and everything would be fine except that this model became progressively less uh, uh, profitable and therefore as a result the banks had uh, to figure out another way to exist because can I, yeah can i just why why did it become there less were two important? main uh, uh, reasons but uh, you it could be simplified into one essentially um, banks gain from lending they can lend to private uh, households and then this is mostly mortgages, as you know, and consumption credit. But uh, you cannot push that too much, right? Because uh, uh, people are going to buy a house, maybe a second house, but they are not going to take a third mortgage on top of that. And only so much that they can borrow depending on how, how much income they got. So they, that cannot be pushed that much. And the other option is to lend to the productive sector, which is supposed to be the main job of the bank and the, and the main cash crop. The problem is that the productive sector in the US, but not only in the US, in the West in general, uh, was organized oligopolistically as it still is, which means that we have a few large firms dominating the market. And these large firms have options in terms of how they fund themselves because they make a lot of money and they can use that money to fund their own activities. They don't have to rely on the banks. And they started to do uh, market-based finance more and more, which means that they started financing themselves by offering bonds directly to households and to private investors. And so they didn't need the banks, which means that they went to actually ask for uh, loans from the bank. They said, hey, we want a loan, but we want it uh, at a much lower interest rate because we have options, you know. We can, uh, we can get uh, better conditions on uh, the bond markets. So we are still coming here because of some reasons how we structure our balance sheets. But uh, we want you to uh, get us a discount. And the banks sort of had to hmm? because the competition was real. And so they couldn't push uh, the um, uh, private debts too much. And they would not make a lot of money on lending to the productive sector. And so essentially they were squeezed there and they started giving less and less money to deposit owners because they were not making a lot of money, so they cut conditions for them. This was a problem because uh, deposit owners were unsatisfied with how much money they were getting. They were saying, well, you get our savings and you don't give us much. Or in fact, with the inflation that was there in the period, they were actually not making, they were losing money. So that was really not a good proposition for them. And so some very entrepreneurial people created uh, money market mutual funds, which essentially were alternative to deposits. Hmm? Uh, they were exactly as safe, only uh, they were providing a slightly higher interest rate. So it was the same service, but with more money. And so deposit owners started to move the money to these uh, money market mutual funds. And the banks had to give them better rates. So on one side, they were taking less money and they were giving out more money. And so the banks were getting squeezed and they were becoming rapidly unprofitable. And in fact, uh, the United States, which was historically characterized by uh, uh, very high amounts of uh, small banks, so it was a, a very competitive uh, sector, well, the small banks started to disappear very quickly. They went the way of the dodo. They started dying en masse. And this was a, a huge problem because uh, uh, the United States regulators did not want to have an uh, oligopolistic uh, banking uh, structure as they have today, actually. They, want, they like their small banks, but they couldn't uh, save them.
When are we now in time? You started at the end of the Second World War. This process essentially started to become problematic and started to bite in the 70s. So uh, immediately after the war, there was space to expand lending to the private uh, households. And so the banks did not have many problems. The problems started to happen in the uh, end of the 60s and the 70s, in which we start to see the first uh, uh, post-war banking crisis. And they are all related to this. Uh, and then uh, the, the slaughter of the small banks uh, really start in the 80s. Okay, so how is this related to the 2006 crisis? What happens next? Now? It happens that uh, the banks uh, uh, decide not to go quietly into that sweet night. And so they decide to change their business model. And they decided that, well, if our competition uh, is essentially uh, market-based, so our competitors are these uh, agile and uh, cheap uh, uh, structures like money market mutual funds and bond markets and so on, well, we are going to feed them. We are not going to fight against them because we cannot, right? Because we are regulated and we are expensive for a number of reasons. But, um, okay, and they start to think, what can we give them? And what we can give them is safe assets, because banks provide safety to the financial system. This is what banks do. Uh, they used to provide safety because they were regulated and uh, uh, they were under uh, the control of the central bank and the government authorities. And so if you dealt with the bank, you were safe. But if the banks were not in the picture anymore, because now it's market-based and so banks become more marginal, so they can provide safe assets. Now, what is a safe asset? Usually is, well, the, the safest asset would be a short-term US government bond. And the problem is that U.S. government bonds are mm, in a given supply. There are lots of those, but uh, there, there is much more demand. And the problem is that the U.S. government uh, does not create those according to the desire of the financial systems. They create those according to their needs, their fiscal needs. And so you cannot create them uh, out of nothing. And the bank said, maybe we can try to do something like that. Maybe we can create uh, some assets that are exactly as safe as the uh, U.S. government bonds. Uh, out of risky private assets. Maybe we can try to do that. And they try to do that and they succeed. And, uh, we, and what exactly did they do? Uh, this is when uh, the securitization thing starts to come into play. So essentially they start, uh, they start from these uh, risky loans that they can make because they are banks and they are in the business of extending consumer credits and mortgage loans and so on. And they figure out uh, uh, very smart and very effective uh, uh, financial techniques to actually craft at least a, uh, a large part of, uh, uh, from these private assets, a large part, transforming a large part of them into assets that were 100% safe, okay? That you didn't have to know anything about those assets and you didn't have to worry about any condition, any external condition, any shock and so on, because these assets would always pay back. Hmm? They would be exactly as safe as a, a US bond. Only since they were made out of private loans, the banks could make more of those. Hmm? So the banks could create more and more of these and feed those to the market-based financial system that was uh, evolving naturally. Okay, so um, uh, you said safe assets, but, safe. but uh, that was the theory, wasn't it, that they were safe for? It was actually the practice in the sense that, uh, um, first of all, for a long time, uh, the assets created the way were exactly as safe as advertised. Uh, and this is why uh, they became uh, so diffused. This, uh, this is why so many of them were created, because they worked. They worked exactly as advertised. And uh, it allowed everyone to make money. So the banks became profitable again. And uh, the financial system became exceptionally efficient. So we had a huge growth of the financial system and a huge growth of credit being created 
which is something that worries the Austrians, of course, uh, because uh, they could be based on uh, these assets that uh, were information insensitive, which means no matter what, these assets would pay. So if anyone comes to you with one of these uh, assets in their hands, let's say, you could trust that person because uh, I can lend him money because if it goes bad, I will just seize that asset and that asset will be good hmm, no matter what. And the only problem is that uh, it is true that the banks could create more and more of these assets. It was not true that the banks could create an unlimited amount of such assets. So they became victims of their own success. But, but could you just explain a little bit more detail? Well, how did they create these assets? What do they consist of? Uh, there is a variety of sources that they used. Mortgages, however, were clearly the number one sources in quantitative terms. But they started to use uh, all sorts of consumer credits. They also started to use credit uh, to uh, firms and so on. So they were a bit mixed uh, towards the end because they were trying to find more and more sources because uh, essentially people were asking for more and more of those and they had to rush to find uh, other sources for this. Only it was difficult because any uh, every uh, financial asset is different from also from a legal perspective. And it was a long legal battle to get these instruments accepted by the authorities. So you couldn't really expand qualitatively that much. The, uh, the, the match. The alternative was to expand quantitatively. So let's uh, have more mortgages, right? And uh, we can do that because we can offer better conditions. So when uh, people find out that they can get uh, more money for less interest, well, they're going to borrow more. But that's perfectly rational, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's simply better condition. And I'm sure a lot of people in Norway uh, make this sort of consideration when they take a mortgage, right? And so they took a lot more mortgages. And so they had a lot more uh, raw stuff to use to create uh, these uh, safe assets. So uh, essentially out of, uh, uh, let's say, if uh, we have 100 of uh, uh, unsafe private mortgages, they were able to create close to 80 perfectly safe assets. And the rest was uh, risky exposure that they could still sell to the market for those uh, hedge funds, for example, that were looking for returns. So it was a perfectly good industry. The problem is that uh, uh, even when you offer great conditions, then you find out a limit, right? This, exp uh, this expansion went on for decades. But eventually, you made all the credit, you extended all the credit that could be reasonably extended, and then you start to enter into unreasonable territory. I guess this is where this expression subprime comes into play. That's correct. So tell me, what is subprime? And the subprime essentially were mortgages uh, that were extended to credit uh, to debtors uh, uh, that were less than prime, which means that were less than good risks. Okay, so uh, debtors that may actually default on mortgages. Now, mortgages by default are extremely safe assets because people tend to pay the mortgages. And even people that struggle tend to pay the mortgages because they ask for they use their savings, uh, they ask uh, for the, the, some support from their family and friends. So it's usually a good deal, but of course it depends on how big this mortgage actually is, right? And uh, essentially what uh, they start, the bank, big banks started to do is to um, give uh, very big commissions to those that would go around uh, physically, hmm, around uh, the country, to uh, find the potential debtors, so, so to push credit on people. And uh, they were giving big bonuses based on how much credit you were able to push. And so the people involved uh, started to cut some corners, let's say, and started to offer very good conditions uh, on paper. They were actually not very good. So they started to make contracts that were very enticing, but they were not actually very good because uh, uh, the good credits were kind of gone by that point. They were all, everyone was indebted to the hilt. 
right? And they would not take more uh, debit. So they needed to go to the bad debtors, and they did. Yeah, these were the subprime. These were the subprime. Yeah. So, so, but I guess when this um, this structure that had been established uh, collapsed, mm. um, and there's a reason why people call this the subprime crisis, and uh, wasn't it that the subprime borrowers that started uh, not paying back their loans, and then these assets that were supposed to be safe that had been created on the basis of a number of mortgages uh, collapsed? Um, sort of. But uh, it was a bit more complicated than that. Uh, first of all, now that uh, the dust has settled, we know that the vast majority of even the subprime-based assets, they were actually good. So uh, most of these assets ended up uh, uh, in uh, the central bank balance sheet, and the Federal Reserve made a killing on those because they bought it for cheap. And they were actually, most of them were good assets. So the losses were quite insignificant. And if you look at compared to the size of financial markets that crashed, around the period, it looks really silly. How can it that be? But the problem was that uh, these assets were supposed to be safe, which means information insensitive, which means that you would buy that asset without worrying what's inside that asset. Because it's, it, these were pretty complex uh, instruments. And so you would need to pay an analyst to tell you how safe that asset was. Only the whole idea is that I would not pay an analyst because I know that these assets are safe because good analysts have already done that job and they told me that they are great, okay? So it doesn't uh, make sense to pay for checking out this asset. This asset is good, I know. And when uh, finally people realized that there were a very small percentage of assets that were actually bad, no one knew where the bad assets were, okay? Everyone knew that some of them were bad, but you didn't know if yours were bad or they were good. And so the entire system, which was based in, no question asked, immediate exchange of money on a day-to-day -day basis could not function anymore because, well, you couldn't trust automatically that uh, asset anymore and you didn't have the capabilities and the money to check the value of that asset and it wouldn't work because these were supposed to be very quick exchanges. So you couldn't really say, wait a second, I need to pay an analyst to run, uh, to run uh, analysis on this. That's impossible. That was not uh, on the cards. So what happened is that people started to ask more of these assets because they say, okay, maybe some are bad, but if they give me a lot of those, then at least some will be good, right? And that means that the system required suddenly a lot more safe assets in a situation in which no more safe assets could be created because all the safe assets were already being created. And the problem is that uh, we were pushing it already. So the system started to ask for more, essentially doubling the demand of safe assets in order to work. And the banking system could not create any more safe assets. That was the problem. And so it collapsed. It, it sounds a little bit like um, you said it collapsed. Um, was it uh, because people did not anymore trust these assets, the insecurity? Uh, it sounds a little bit like an old school bank run in a way. It was a bank run that happened on the repo market. Uh, and the repo market was uh, uh, the number one internet global market for funding for uh, the global financial system. And when that market became disorganized, essentially that was, uh, uh, that was the global problem. So uh, the subprime were involved as a trigger. But any explanation that only talks about the subprime either exaggerate their size, because the size was really small compared to the total, and especially provides a, a bad explanation, because uh, it seems like the only problem was that some people in the US took more mortgages that they could really afford. 
right? And this is not a good explanation for a global systemic crisis uh, that changed forever our financial system, right? That is uh, too local. That is too small. So how are these things then related? <laughs> is it possible to... So, so if it's not uh, the subprime, what is the... Um... The problem was the, uh, the banking structure, right? And the shadow banking structure, as it was called, which is the idea that we have a market-based finance uh, in which the banks provide safe assets for the system to continuously expand. Hmm? That was the problem. It was not sustainable because the um, size of uh, the sheer size of uh, safe assets that the system required in order to work could not be sustainably created. So the rate of creation of the safe assets was unsustainable. So basically what you're saying that banks uh, in, in the 60s and 70s experienced problems with their business model. Yeah. They invented a new business model. Yeah, which worked. And it worked for many years. Many. Uh, but it, uh, at the same time, uh, it built up uh, a system. It was based on an unsustainable rate of growth. Yeah. And so if you want to understand why it eventually collapsed, then you have to really go back to see why the banks had transfor- transformed in this way. Right. And uh, the banks were so successful that uh, the Americans' model uh, spread around the world. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, a lot of people blame the Europeans for the collapse because when the Europeans, uh, the Europeans banks uh, uh, decided to enter this market because it was the only game in town for profitability. If you compare the profitability of European banks to American banks, you could see that the American banks were winning hands down. And so the Europeans entered and it were, in fact, uh, the worst Uh, subprime-based uh, uh, safe assets uh, were created by European banks. How did they do that? Uh, European banks in because they could because uh, uh, finance is global, and so uh, there was absolutely no limitation to that. It would, no one was saying that uh, uh, your bank needed to be physically located in the U.S. in order to uh, create these assets. In fact, European banks have, have uh, created dollars uh, since uh, uh, the beginning of the Cold War essentially. So this was an extension of that. And uh, there was a change in regulations for uh, the European banks with Basel. And uh, they were allowed to enter this market and they entered this market big time. And uh, they entered this market exactly at the end of the good times. So they entered this market when it was already getting, uh, let's see, uh, too crowded. And they started producing a huge amount of these assets in a very short time. And this was what triggered the crisis. So it was the Europeans uh, trying to copy the Americans because the Americans uh, got a very good model that worked. But so, so really, uh, if you if you if you go back to where you started, where this business model of banking is not working in the U.S., um, we. Are you saying that we saw the same type of processes in European banks? Same type. And in fact, uh, even the response uh, was similar. And uh, um, because it was uh, essentially a problem with the financial system and the financial system is based around the so-called systemic banks and the systemic banks are located, uh, let's say it's an even split between uh, Europe and the US with a sprinkle of Japan in it. So that's where the problem was. And we know that the European banking system since then have been in shambles and it has been very slowly repairing itself and is still not fixed. Hmm? Mm-hmm. So this tells you how much they were involved. I, I, we talk about European, I think uh, we talk about uh, continental Europe because this does not uh, sound uh, very familiar with uh, what I know from Norwegian banking, for no. example. Because, uh, well, Norway is, uh, as always, a special case. Right? <laughs> Or and Sweden, for that. Well, a little bit more Sweden. Well, Sweden, <laughs> I would say that Sweden is pretty much is involved. Uh, when I say Europeans, however, uh, we have the, all the data, so we know which Europeans were more involved. And so we're talking about uh, the UK, Switzerland, uh, Germany, and France. 
these were the center of this, but these are the center of the European banking community. So uh, it's a bit of a simplification to say Europeans, I agree. Of course, Norway is different because, uh, well, the Norwegian banks uh, live on um, uh, the nice uh, real estate bubble that Norway has been fostering for some decades now. So, you know, they don't uh, they don't need uh, uh, tricks like that because uh, they can be profitable on top of this as long as this continues. The basic business model seems to work still. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, but, of course, if you... You know, uh, if you accept the assumption that housing prices uh, uh, will continue to rise more than the economy grows, as long as that's the case. That's that's a, I think that's a subject for a different podcast, yes. actually. So, uh, well, um, in, when we talked about theories, uh, we talked about, you know, a way of separating theories is to, to ask who is to blame for, for the crisis. And mm. um, is it possible to point uh, the finger to someone here? Uh, uh, anytime you have a systemic explanation, either you point the system to the entire, uh, you point the finger to the entire system, or you don't. But uh, there is a, a problem actually, which is uh, uh, the concentration of wealth. So the rising inequality made a huge problem. One of the uh, problems, for example, is that uh, uh, we have these huge cash pools that you might be familiar with if you know, for example, the high-tech sector, which, as you know, is a very much an oligopolistic sector with very clear leaders that uh, control the market and they use this control of the market to accumulate immense amount of fu- amounts of funds uh, that are denominated in US dollars and they need to find uh, some uh, safe assets to be held in. And so there is this immense demand that doesn't come only from mom and pop's investors. It comes from huge financial, uh, actually high-tech firms that need to find a safe solution to hold all their assets. So this, uh, and and of course, the various uh, inequality processes that drive that and are driven by that. So yeah, I would point out to the uh, unsustainable rise of inequality and therefore the uh, ever-growing question of what to do with all this wealth that we keep accumulating that has uh, uh, the element to blame there. Yeah, so so uh, because also what we talked about is, is, is the financial sector itself to blame or is the blame, you know, outside of the financial sector and... Uh, I, in this case, um, what I said is uh, pointing out to outside the financial sector. Mm. I'm not saying that the financial sector uh, behaved well because uh, uh, people in the financial sector knew about the unsustainability of the process. And we know because uh, they have talked about it and they've written about it before the process uh, collapsed. So there were insiders that knew. But uh, when you are insider of a huge global system, there is very little that you can do. So what was a bank supposed to do? Staying outside of this model and potentially being unprofitable and closed down because of competitive pressures or getting in in this model knowing that it would be unsustainable they might fall down at any moment that's a tough uh, question to answer you you talked about that we were almost done here but you talked about in the beginning that this uh, um, this crisis caused you know it transformed global finance but it was also solved in a way really quickly yeah uh, so is it solved in exclamation marks or yeah. is it uh, solved? Well, um, it depends. Because, uh, here opinions really differ. But it was solved in a sense, if we follow the, the narrative that we used so far, what was the problem? The lack of safe assets, right? So how was solved? Central banks expanding the balance sheets to create immense amount of safe assets for everyone to take. So they inundated the whole financial markets with 
safe assets, 100% public-based safe assets. The whole, uh, the real thing, right? Because uh, the uh, almost uh, safe assets that were created, uh, they were clearly not the real thing. So they created the real thing. And a lot of commentators said, well, uh, either we change the system or this this uh, situation is never going to come back to normal. Because a lot of people said, okay, we are expanding a lot now, but then the balance sheets of the central banks will deflate when the situation comes back to normal. But uh, if we st- stay with this system, either we have another private-based form of uh, creation of safe assets, which proved to be unsustainable. Okay, So either we do the same thing again, and that doesn't sound very good, or we keep a completely different system that is based around very large and very influential central banks, which is exactly the system that we have today. And some people are happy about that. Uh, most people are criticizing that because they say this was a stopgap solution that seems to be here for us to stay because we are in 2020 and the central banks are not getting smaller. They're actually getting larger. So it seems that we are, uh, we are, uh, we found a solution that is a however long-term solution. And there are some issues with that, of course, but, uh, and we are seeing the, those issues coming uh, perhaps to a fight in Europe, mm. but that's uh, another story. Yeah, but this, this seems uh, like a very new role for the for the central bank. Huh? We, An entirely we, new role. Yeah, because we normally talk about the central bank as the lender of last resort. And then exactly. it, uh, that's, the, you know, the main thing that the central bank can do. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, and the interest rates. two issues here because one is, uh, okay, the central banks are taking on uh, bigger and bigger mandates. And in fact, we have people asking them to do even more to, for example, support the uh, green transition. To say one thing, so uh, are we fine with this extension of the mandates of central banks, or are we not fine with it? And the second thing is, what are the private banks supposed to do here? Because the issue of uh, banking profitability is back, is back because it was not solved, and the solution that was used before that worked for decades, well, proved to be problematic in the long run. And so now uh, private banks have to find something else to do. Yeah, and. Uh this is the future, so we're not going to talk so much about the future here, and uh, it's easier to talk about history. Thank you, Ben, for giving us this uh, introduction or more uh, complex explanation of the financial crisis of 2008. We agreed to call it the Great Recession. We agreed. Yeah, and so um, thank you again for coming, and maybe you will come back sometime for a later show. We'll see. Yeah. This is a BI production. Listen to more podcasts. Go to bi.no slash podcasts.